The fact is, I think the more you delve into the truly astonishing nature of existence, you got it's just too wild to be that explainable. And I think it would be cool to get into a deep conversation with, you know, like I have a favorite physicist, um, Carlo Rovelli, who's like, to me, he's like a poet because he interprets high concept stuff that's way above me. I know it's way above me, but he's he has the gift of being able to translate it into somewhat, you know, conceivable language for people like us. And he's very spiritual, you know, because I think, yeah, when you, when you look, when you're looking back at the, the origin of existence, it, you know, it gets wild in there. And it's one of those things where, you know, every, every once in a while there's a breakthrough in quantum mechanics or string theory. And it is something that was completely inconceivable for and would have seemed ridiculous. Yeah. I mean, the stuff that they're getting with the James Webb telescope right now is like, you know, when you look at those images, it does, it's, it's really stirring because it reminds us that we, you know, we really have no idea what the hell's going on. Um, but we keep trying to figure it out. <laughs> I guess at a certain point, like even the best scientists in the world has to give in to the fact that like, if we're lucky we live like 80 or 90 years. There's a certain like very small portion of the sum of knowledge that we'll be able to get in our lifetimes. Yeah. And there's such team players too. Like, the idea that so many scientists work on a project that in their lifetime, they may never see the results that they did. Like if it, if it lines up that you happen to live through the period of time where there was, you know, a quantifiable uh, achievement, then it's, then it's huge. But otherwise you're just in service, you know, I love that they're in service to like always going toward being disproven, which is, you know, a kind of a cool approach to, I try to use that in my life of, instead of becoming, you know, rigid, right. In your ideas and only seeking like just the confirmation bias thing that happens to all of us. Like instead of only ever looking for proof of whatever case you're building, you know, I love the idea that you're looking for ways to disprove it. And if you can't disprove it, then it, then it survives. I do think there's something liberating in that, but it's also maybe doesn't really comport well with human nature. Like (laughs) regardless of, of your political beliefs, it's, it's really hard admitting that you're wrong. Not just that you're wrong, but that you've like really committed yourself to a certain belief for most of your life. Sunk costs. They're a killer. This is why I feel like the craft of of creating music, like the way that Jimmy and I work together is so intertwined with just like my fundamental existence is because we've had to adopt these policies on sunk costs. And exactly what we're discussing, like, you know, we'll work on something for weeks, like I'll present something oftentimes that I've already spent innumerable hours at the piano, you know, crafting, and then I'll bring it in to Jimmy. And if he's feeling it, you know, it can be weeks of arrangements and just a hell of a lot of sunk costs. But then the reality is if it didn't make it, we just were ruthless and we just cut it down and it goes, you know, on the cutting room floor and doesn't, doesn't make it out into the world. And I feel like just the process of doing that, like being able to commit so fully to something and believe that this could be your next biggest song or be the thing that never even makes it out into the world. I feel like it's a good mental exercise, but it's excruciating. (laughs) My very basic understanding is part of the reason why the sunk cost fallacy is a fallacy is even if the thing that you were working on doesn't take the form that you wanted or were expecting doesn't mean that it was a, a waste of time trying to get there. Well, and that is what is cool about composition it's true and i I instantly makes me think of athletics as well because it's just every every moment that you're spending 
within the pursuit of that thing. I think you're right. You have no way to really prove that when you land on something that it wasn't as a result of all those failed attempts um, previously, you know, that the line is not clear. I don't know if the two of you work this way, but a lot of, especially musicians, but I guess artists generally, they'll come back to something, whether consciously or subconsciously, you know, something you were working on a long time ago, for whatever reason, it didn't comport with something that you were trying to do before, but it just sort of bubbles up and it just, it fits the moment perfectly. Yeah, that does happen. I'm laughing because I have one song (laughs) called The Athlete, ironically enough, given our conversation, um, and uh, that I've threatened, like every single time we're going in to start on a new record, I always threaten like, guys, I got a new, you know, I got a new bridge for the athlete. I'm bringing it back. <laughs> and uh, they, they are not amused. Um, no one is has my back on that at all. But that's from early, like fantasies writing sessions. So probably like 2006 or something. Um, but it makes me laugh. The poor athlete. I feel bad. Like, I feel like you know, as much as I try to, you know, convey this idea to you that I'm like, so I accept that, you know, this ruthless editing approach, I do sometimes feel like I've actually, I've failed the song, you know, I'm like, sorry, man, you had so much potential. <laughs> I didn't get you. I didn't get you what you needed to get you up and walking around, but it's weird to have relationships with ideas like that. It's funny, you know, you're laughing about now and it sounds like it is funny to you in the process of bringing it to them, but you're also, you're also committed to it, right? I mean, you see something in it. I do. (laughs) Oh, this is bad. This is not a good thing that this is coming up again because... Does this come up in interviews or does just this comes up in meetings with the band? No, just that it's come back up. I haven't, don't think I've ever spoken to anyone about it. No, it's come, that it's coming up for me. It's exactly as you say, I'm like, I'm like, that first line. <laughs> maybe talking to somebody outside of the band, maybe we can like kind of talk through. Uh, we and, and, you know, either we'll figure out what the essence is or we'll figure out uh, why it's time to move on from it. Well, it's funny because the, the lyric is, you're still living for high school, um, which I think is great. And I think, but it's like so much stuff that happens with the writing is like, it's sort of this, it's going, it's looping in on itself. Like the snake is eating its tail because it's like, in a way, I feel like I'm still living for high school and trying to get the athlete made. But uh, yeah, it's, I always think the word high school just sounds really good in a song, like high school confidential. I can't think of a single other example. It's probably some hold steady song with high school in it. Yeah, for sure. There's probably some like bad fifties like diner vibes with the word high school. Yeah, high school, <laughs> high school bop or my high school, bop, my high school totally. baby. Yeah, um, but it's but the whole the the beginning of the song is like you know I saw you on the street with the last of your old class, the athlete and the loser, the future and the past. Like that idea when you bump into someone and they've either completely changed or they're the same. I think it warrants, I think the idea warrants a solid three minute banger. I mean, I, I'm, this is bad. I'm fired up and I'm probably going to go back in there and make this pitch again. You'll be the first to know if I get accepted. I do think there, there's something to it because it, it is, I mean, it's a song about not letting go, right? Well, it could be, we have room, you know, in the second verse, that's what the second verse is for is to, uh, elaborate and perhaps cast some judgments on it, but it could also just 
be stylistically, I love the observational style of writing where it's just not necessarily attaching um, it, it one way or the other, you know, I guess it would be, it, it's kind of calling it saying you're still living for high school is kind of calling out this person in the ver- from the verse, but um, could be a good thing. Could, you know, the fact that they're still living for high school could, could be the reason that they're CEO. The implications of that specifically are that they, they're stuck in that loop, as you put it before. Totally. It doesn't sound like a compliment. Like, hey, I ran into Brandy. Man, guys, still living for high school. You're not like, that's great news. <laughs> I guess the one thing I would say that could potentially flip it on its head is that, um, you know, because I mean, we, we, we've all encountered that before. And that's like the whole thing about like high school reunions or like going back to your hometown and, and seeing those people. Oftentimes, those were the people who like bullied you or were kind of shitty to you mm-hmm. at the time. And it's a sort of vindication. But if you step outside it for a second and look at yourself, aren't you also kind of stuck in high school if you're casting that judgment on them? I mean, I, I it's hard to argue that. It's true. And it may also just be that even if we all feel like we've grown past whatever that experience was like for all of us, that it is motivating subconsciously, if you're lucky, and possibly consciously, if you're not, where it's like, I'm, I'll show Brett, you know, like, as you say, like the guy that bullies you or Brett's a good name. I, I, it's a good bully did, did you Did you pull that? Did you pull that out of nothing? Or is there a Brett? No, that's out of nothing. Yeah. It just seems like that would be the guy. But yeah, I mean, for me, actually, my early thing that I still know is the like, I'll show them was when I was really little. And I there was a talent show and um, elementary school was like all the way from kindergarten to grade eight. So that's a, that's a big swath. So I was in kindergarten and it was like, you know, I mean, it feel it sounds like a scene from a bad American movie, but uh, it's like, you know, the whole auditorium is full of the kids and it's the talent show. And like, you know, the cool kids are doing their like cover bands with their guitars and all that. But I was totally adamant. And I remember this so vividly. I was totally adamant about doing Somewhere Over the Rainbow acapella. I was like, no, I'm going to kill it. It's going to be amazing. It's bold, right? And I remember my teacher being, Emmy, do you think maybe you want to try? Maybe someone could play piano with you or maybe you want to do. And I was like, no, I got this. Like, And... I got up there and I went like some, you know, like Muppet show style. Like, and the, I, I still have the visuals so clear in my head of the entire auditorium, just like going, ah, laughing so hard, like pointing, laughing, you know, I think my brother and sister were in there somewhere. And There's just the no way it went down exactly like that though. I, I mean, I can show you the reel straight from my brain. Uh, but I do still feel with anything, like when I think about the core motivations for what keeps me going in my work, I swear to God, it's that feeling of like, I'll show you guys, like you laughed at me then, but mwahaha, like who's laughing now? You know, that I know that that still motivates me because my mom said that I, after that was like, I'm never singing again. And then, you know, promptly was switched attitudes but i'm not going to suggest that vindication or revenge are necessarily the best motivators but that said like i think there is something to that because i do think that a majority of people would have had that experience and then just never wanted to repeat it again and never never gone back on on stage but obviously that that hasn't stopped you well it must be also that we all there's that frame frame time frame when you're a kid where perhaps it doesn't matter what happens it's going to determine some elements of your direction because conceivably 
someone could have had, like take that exact same story from, taken from my perspective, but maybe there was someone else at that talent show who was killed it with their, you know, like poison cover or whatever. And that they, they still relive in their mind that moment as being like the high of when they were king and everyone loved them. And they've spent their whole life being like, someday I'm going to get that feeling back. You know, it could go, it could go both ways. So, And I don't think we talk about this enough, but there is a way in which success can almost be a demotivator. You know, you, you've achieved the thing that you want, wanted to achieve. You got to where you want to be. Why are you going to continue to push yourself? Peaking too early and then chasing, you know, chasing something for the rest of your life and never being able to get that, get that back. Take me through what happens between that moment on stage at the talent show, things not going, not going the way they looked in your head to you actually really committing yourself to being a musician. Yeah. I mean, I think I was just, it was really one of those things of as a kid, it was just my thing. Um, just being at the piano, I just felt like that was just, it was like a, portal, you know, like Narnia vibes, you know, like just as soon as I sat down, I felt like I couldn't believe what was possible. And, uh, you know, really creative family. My mom and dad, my mom's a painter and my dad's a poet and they were both teachers. So we, it was a really good environment. Um, I even feel like my brother and sister were super supportive. Like as I got older, my brother, um, introduced me to a lot of music told me to stop listening to the radio and listen to the good stuff, you know, playing me vinyl records and um, buying me recording equipment, you know, rudimentary cassette recording that I could do four track recording and stuff. Um, so it was pretty, it was pretty immediate. And then I was getting in a lot of trouble when I was a kid and I had a teacher that helped me get an audition at a school in Toronto and that was just really, I feel like my whole life, I've just had that good fortune of, you know, everyone's got those bad teachers, but I just feel like the ones that are good are just such a lifesaver, right? Like, so he helped me get an audition and I got into this art school and then I, that just kind of solidified things. And it's a grind. Like, I I can't believe that Jimmy and I have been able to keep this going for 20 years and <clears throat> stay true to the ethical and sort of the principle of how we want things done, owning our own material, et cetera. But uh, there was never really a wavering. The only time I've wavered where I felt like I might not be able to do this was when the first sort of wave of like uh, the social media demands started where it was like, you know, I'd come home off tour and it was like, oh, I'm supposed to spend my day photographing an omelet, you know, (laughs) to keep my band relevant. I was like... I can't, I'm a private person. I'm not going to sit around taking photos of myself, like in my house by myself. I can't do this. And then all those, those obligations too, like on the road with like Twitter and stuff. I was like, this is the only time I've ever felt like I can't do it. Um, but then I solved that cause I got like a partner who I work, I do all that stuff with. And now it's like, we're a team and I feel like I, I dodged that bullet. But other than that, I've always, I, I kept going. I'm going to show those kids in the auditorium what I'm made of. This is something that's that always fascinates me talking to to somebody who like is ostensibly a public figure but but who considers himself a private person. How do you reconcile those two things? Yeah, I mean to me if I was like if I ran for public office or something, it's kind of part of the job description. Um and I see it as part of the job description with being a musician when it comes to like 
you know, to impress, hanging out, having this conversation with you. You know, we do lots of meet and greets. We do lots of stuff with, with fans and talking to people and being open and generous with your time and all that stuff. But uh, to me, it, there's it's not, you know, obligatory that you have to, you know, cannibalize seemingly endlessly for people who take that route. It seems like it's like there is no end to how personal and how revealing you're going to go to just like keep feeding the, the machine. Like I just, the tube, I can't do it. So, um, and happily, I don't, I feel like that's totally been accepted. Like I, I have lots of in-depth conversations. I'm not closed off, but no one's, expecting it of me that I have to divulge stuff that's about my personal life. It's cool. The timing probably helped. It probably helped that you were established before that the wave of social media agreed, came along. Agreed. And also just that I thought about it and didn't just get swept up in it. Cause I think that's the problem is once you start, you can't really, it's hard to get back. That's always like one of the funniest things when celebrities are like, I'm leaving social media, like, and then they're back. Cause I, yeah, people, I think people get addicted to the attention too. Right. Use the word cannibalize. Mm-hmm. What does that mean in this context? Well, I mean, I have a whole sort of philosophy about what I call like emotional capitalism, which is basically what my job description is in a way is like, it's taking, you know, the sense of everything being currency, true, truly, which currency maybe has a negative connotation to it. But I don't, I don't mean it that way when I say it. Capitalism certainly does. Yeah, it doesn't. It's there are different kinds of currency. There's like indie cred is a currency. It's not it's a little bit like crypto, but uh, it's a, it's a thing. <laughs> it's about um, as stable. <laughs> totally. Yeah. Not a lot of uh, other currencies pinned to uh, indie cred. It's not the greenback um, of currencies. <laughs> um, but yeah, I mean, I, I feel like, <clears throat> like what I offer, my purpose, my usefulness uh, in the world is being able to craft, you know, take emotional experiences and some, you know, interpretations of the world and ways of expressing things that maybe people struggle with and getting them concise and clear in a piece of music. And that's then packaged and, you know, ostensibly sold if we actually bought albums anymore, but that's a whole other conversation. So to me, it's like, I accept that because there's a certain amount of like production on my part of taking a raw emotion and turning it into something of value um, which may not be monetary value, but it is of value to the people who listen to it and say, man, thank you, Haynes. I needed that. Like you helped me clarify that or, you know, whatever it is. But so the cannibalizing thing is like, to, is, is the definitely has a negative connotation to it, where it's the idea that you're just sort of endlessly destroying things of value in your life just for the purpose of trying to have something to feed other people. So, you know, for example, if I was someone who, you know, in my relationship, if, you know, if with my boyfriend, if I was like every day, all day trying to get shots of, you know, get him to take pictures of me in every state of every moment or constantly live streaming or constantly like, you know, tweeting out stuff and being all fired up in that realm. To me, that's just like you're cannibalizing your life and God forbid you bring along, you know, other people. So he did not sign up for that. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Clearly in this conversation and what I've seen from you in the world, like you are and can be an open person when the situation calls for it or, or when you're feeling it as somebody who like, you know, came up really appreciating 
things like like I know you know you perform with Lou Reed and punk and things like that. How important is the mystique? Is that something that you risk you removing that veil if you give up too much of yourself or if you explain too much of the music? I don't know. I I feel like maybe and if and maybe that's a positive byproduct of my decisions is maybe I have a little bit left or something, but I don't I feel like it might be a concept that's sort of, I mean, I'm with you uh, on the idea of valuing mystique, but it's, it almost feels a little bit like when people, you try to talk to people about the concept of selling out and they have no idea where you, what you're even talking about. Like, yeah. Under the age (laughs) of what, like 30 at this point is probably the cutoff now. What do you, what do you even mean? So I think mystique, when you see the, the level of, you know, self, exposure that has yielded great success and great results for a lot of people. I think the argument can be made that, you know, mystique is, it ain't what it used to be. You're like, I like saying, you know, you're not hiding if no one's looking for you. Um, which is, I think probably more the case with me is like, it's just, there's not, um, but I, regardless, I'd still, I'd still rather have mystique than overexposure. That's for sure. The concept of selling out in particular is, very interesting to me in 2020, you know, as, you know, somebody who like came up going to a lot of punk shows and is part of that, this sort of this idea of letting go or killing your darlings, knowing when these ethos that were really important to you at a, a very formative point of your life have maybe outworn their welcome. I don't think the two are, are related. I mean, for us, like we're perhaps in a borderline juvenile way just absolutely the most stubborn as ever about, you know, my, my views have not changed on the fundamental flaws in the like boilerplate, you know, recording contracts, the, the way that we look at as a default setting of how it is that you should be in business as a musician and a writer in the world, I think is just like fundamentally flawed and realizing that, I totally recognize that there are loads of people that it works great for. They don't want to own their music. They don't, maybe they don't even want to write their music, which by the way is also totally fine. Like there's great singers that just want, they, they're a perfect person to, to be made into a product and it works. I don't know anybody. I only know horror stories. And then we all have, you know, the superstars as the exceptions that prove the rule. Right. But, um, you know, I, I, we haven't changed at all. And in fact, it's been really rewarding to see that um, we've, because it's a confusing sometimes situation because we're total team players, but we like just kind of refuse to play by those rules. So it can be isolating, very. Um, We didn't want to be isolated, but it was also like not possible for us to do it another way. But so then we ended up working with 30 Tigers, which has been really great because Macias is like, oh yeah, like you guys are, this, the way you, you're doing it is exactly why we exist. And we feel like we have this like whole family now working uh, the new album. We own our masters. It's simple. And so we can all work really hard and not feel like we're being duped. Um, so yeah, I haven't, uh, I haven't given up on any of those principles. Part of growing up is figuring out which of your stands were like done for good reasons, but ultimately were completely arbitrary. <laughs> yeah. Posturing. Yeah. Yeah. Well, they, they felt they felt like they were motivated by the right forces at the time. 
certain things like certain things that you wouldn't do because of, you know, because you, you risk selling out and then you look back on them and you're like, oh, that was completely silly. I mean, it's weird because I obviously I know what you mean, but the ones that's come to mind, um, you know, there was one thing where we've done like lots of um, TV placements and stuff and movie work mm-hmm. and stuff. Uh, but there was one where it was Victoria's Secret, like for that runway, like underwear hellscape thing. They wanted Youth Without Youth um, from Synthetica. And that song is like so close to my heart and I absolutely shut it down. And then I had a, a little window, a little wobble after that. Cause it was like kind of a lot of money and kind of a lot of exposure. And, you know, I think I ended up seeing and hearing what song they used instead or, and was like, Oh man, I think I maybe missed the mark. And then with time, um, I'm just so happy as, you know, it's not like people didn't have a sense that there was some nasty stuff going on with Victoria's secret but it really did kind of get revealed. And I'm like, yes, that was the right decision. Um, and the other one that comes You didn't to have to be a psychic to know that Les Wexner was, you know, right? maybe like, not. Yeah, this. it wasn't, uh, yeah, it wasn't like, how did I manage to figure out that this is the most grotesque thing? Um, but yeah, it could have just been gross, not that gross. It, it turned out to be that gross. Um, but the other one that I find actually funny as hell that also ended up working out okay, but is on Old World Underground, I remember being so adamant with Michael Andrews, who produced the record, like no reverb on the vocals, like zero. And if you listen to the record, you'll hear it. It's like, it's bone dry, which totally works. And he probably would have really pushed me on it if he didn't feel like stylistically it was going to work. But that to me is an example of what you're talking about, where it's like, it's actually ignorant. It's like, you don't, you're not understanding sonics, like actually, like, you know, there's a, you're not going to sound like a cheap karaoke singer just because you use reverb. But in my in a lack of experience, you know, I associated it with like just being like overly touched up sounding female vocals. And I was like, no, man, like no reverb. So if you auto tune before auto tune, there's the zero reverb on my vocals on that whole record. I, I think about this all the time. And, you know, most of the musicians I talk to, will they'll, they'll tell you that the thing that, that dates a record more than anything is, is the way that the drums are recorded. But it's so strange to me. And, and maybe this is just me kind of getting older and, you know, I guess not being as with it as I used to be, but a song with autotune, I still, I, I can't, I can't do it. And and it's and it's completely seeped into just like every facet of music making. It happened to me last night actually, where I was hanging out and I was listening to. I love exploring, finding new music, like all styles of music, right? But I was listening to. Um, I love Damon Albarn from Blur, um, and we actually when we played Coachella uh, the last time, it was just like the best dream lineup because it was the year that they had their reunion and they were actually really good which is also always just like, yes, okay. Like, thank you for not sucking. This is so positive. This was done for the right reasons. Exactly, exactly. And so I was kind of reminiscing about that and feeling good vibes. And then I saw that there was a collab with Flume, who I've, there's a song that I really liked from Flume. I was like, that's cool. Like, And then, but to your point about the autotune thing, then within like two seconds of just feeling like I was on like a happy kind of exploratory ride of like, checking out stuff, I ended up in just a complete auto-tune, like hellhole, hellscape, where all my open-mindedness and everything just evaporated. And it was just like a, it's just a line in the sand where I'm like, I can't even 
interact with this piece of music because I'm not, I can't, I just, and I, and I see why you prefaced your comment by saying maybe it's being older or whatever, because it is one of the only instances where I feel like maybe this is just a generational thing where I'm just like, we played this festival with the strokes played and like Julian Casablanca is doing all this stuff with auto tune on it. I'm like, what are you, why are you doing that? It's like killing me, <laughs> but we're alone. Uh, we are not the rule. I always wanted to do like, you know how they did that, the D Phil Spectorized version of Let It Be? Oh, I heard about that. What does it sound like? On the original record, like Phil Spector went a little, he went overboard. Like there's, there's all like sound snippets and stuff in there. Mm-hmm. It's mostly just that taken away. It's, it's the or- orchestration taken away. And I just feel like, just give us a version of that for this autotune stuff, you know, give, give yeah. us like two versions of the record. Totally. Yeah. And I, and I feel really stubborn about that though, that I'm like, I don't see that changing. I listened to a lot of hip hop and I was just like, all right, we'll, we'll deal with two years of this and then, then we'll move on. And it's like, no, this is just how it is now. Right. Like creeping in. I mean, I do feel like, um, Osano shake, a friend of mine produces a bunch of her stuff. Um, and I feel like she's one of the only examples where it's like, I hear it. I, I know I hear it, but it's something where it feels like it's being used as one of the tools as opposed to like, you know, it feels like the same thing when like that dreaded feeling when you're putting on a great film and it's in like HD sports max mode on the screen, you know, it gives me the exact same feeling where it like turns everyone into, you know, like an orange faced newscaster, but it's like a Fellini movie or something. It's just like, no, Fellini did not shoot for, he did for 4K. not. <laughs> There's a really great quote from you that I'm, was kind of trying to wrap my brain around. I'm sorry, I'm going to quote you at yourself, which I apologize in advance for this. But you said, we were really pushing ourselves to make the thing that will carry us into the next two decades of our career. And this is interesting, right? Because we're talking we're talking about, obviously, we're talking about staying true to your roots, but also, you know, you've been doing this for a long time, trying to, I don't know if relevant is the right word, but like, there are ways in which maybe you feel obligated to keep up with the times. Um, yeah, it's it's funny. I like thinking ahead to those to the next two decades, because that's a thing. Like there are those people who are genuinely legends who do it their entire life. And barring some horrific outside interference, that is 100%. Like I've, I've signed up that this is what I'm doing with my life with Jimmy, you know? And for us, I just think the, like the relevance piece, cause it's totally there. Like, you know, the idea that we would just, if we were going to fall back on something, what would we do? We try to make fantasies over and over again. I mean, it wouldn't work, right? Because that album clicked in 2009 because it was 2009 and that was the album in that time. It's not, you know, it's not a freestanding thing. It's we're all, we're all moving through space and time last I checked. So I think it's just for us, like if we just keep pushing and, and continuing to defy really what should be a pragmatic approach. Like for example, maybe on your eighth album after a pandemic, don't start with a 10 and a half minute song as track one. Like, you know, just put it out there. If you've got your clear single as the second track on the record. Yeah. But we just make, we just make it, we just push ourselves and we make it ideally relevant in that way, because we're doing everything we can to like participate in the moment. But I don't, the idea of chasing like a certain demographic or like the idea that, that everyone younger than you 
needs to love what you're doing. Like we have a lot of young people come, younger people than us come to our shows. It's great. I feel like that presence is there, but I feel like there's just such insecurity. Um, and maybe it was always like this, but I just, I just can't get with this idea that like anyone sort of, you know, in your forties, you're just desperately like courting the opinion of a, you know, 14 year old boy or something. It's like, I'm good, man. I don't, (laughs) I don't feel like, I feel like people have been making art and making music for a long time. And there's some stuff that's great for the little kids and the teeny poppers. And there's, there's room for everything. And I don't know if it's because that like, we're all just communicating by emoji now or what the hell of why there's this sense of just being so like infantilized and so immature and just like insecure about like wanting, you know, a 10 year old to be fired up about your music. Like they are a fantastic, you know, hopefully they're coming with their parents and there's a cool conversation, but so um, we'll see either this attitude that we have of just trying to have like a shred of confidence, um, you know, 20 years in, God forbid, maybe it'll totally backfire and it'll be like, we'll just lose people. But that hasn't been happening. It's been the opposite. I think people are engaged because we're so committed to actually doing something other than just clinging to the past, right? I mean, or like chasing the, the youth. <laughs> I definitely don't have any more insight into any of this than you do, obviously, as somebody who's been in it. But I will say that from my perspective, I don't think that that's anything new. I think, have you heard about the, the concept of teenagers were in, invented in the 50s? I haven't heard that, but I, but that's, tell me more. For most of history, children were just like kind of viewed as like as young adults. And this idea of them just sort of being, being like autonomous beings really developed, I guess, sort of post-war you know, baby boomer period. If you really like take the time and and study what pop music has looked like, this is a cycle that repeats over and over again. And the reason why it's hard to see is because the people that you ultimately end up seeing are those few who are able to buck the trend. Hmm. But like a majority of people are, they're chasing that because they know that that those are the core people. That's what they build that foundation on. I had Nick Lowe on the show and he's like, I think he's the best, probably the best example of like aging gracefully in pop music. And the reason why it's so remarkable is because, because it is an outlier. Right. It's, I think about that sometimes, like I've kind of running analogy going lately, which is like the idea of, you know, when you see your, you've got your restaurant in your neighborhood, that is your favorite restaurant. And maybe it's even you know, really hard to get a reservation and maybe it's a Michelin star even, you know, like it's, it, but everyone knows it's really good. You know, this isn't like a, it's not a pub. It's like a really great restaurant that has a certain capacity and it's been around forever and it's consistently good and it's, it's success, right? I was thinking how you never go into one of those places and think, oh man, this is so good, but God, it'd be so much better if there were like 60 franchises or this would be so much better if the capacity of this lovely room was, you know, a hundred times bigger and you could ram people in, you know, and thinking of this like comparatively with the work that we do as musicians and this sort of default like attitude that bigger is always better and more people, whoever they are, doesn't matter is always better. And just, and kind of like connecting this back to like the outlier thing is just like, you know, the generic, like chicken McNuggets are, <laughs> we all know what that is and why they're ubiquitous. And there's a uniformity to them. Like, they, you know, they actually have molds for them. What's that? 
there's like three or four shapes for chicken McNuggets. That was I was unprepared for that piece of information. I learned a lot. I didn't think you were eating chicken McNuggets. So I'm no, sorry if I ruined them. Yeah, for you. I changed my lunch plan. Um, but you know, like the idea of, and also being fine with that and realizing in music, the same thing's going to happen where there's, you know, you can rattle off a handful, um, of names at any given point that are totally ubiquitous, like chicken McNuggets or whatever, but there's no one's under the illusion that this is making some sort of amazing impact, right. In the world. And like, just this fallacy of that scale is always synonymous with longevity and success and, and, and purpose and, and value. And I feel, I find that more that I like kind of work within that analogy, I really like it because it's really, it's when I mention it to friends who are kind of like up against it, you know, it's hard. Like I know a lot of musicians are really talented and they just, they just feel completely worthless. You know, I feel like that, that analogy is really helpful of just like, don't get confused. Like there's a reason that some things are everywhere, but that doesn't mean that they that their value is more. Maybe it sounds so absolutely pedantic and basic, but you know what I'm getting at? I will say, I mean, the one thing I will say is I think that that analogy works for you because you've been able to achieve a certain scale that has allowed you to continue making a living doing this. Yeah. Like, like I'm that restaurant that has, hasn't had an empty table for, you know, 20 years or whatever. Right. Like exactly. If you, if you were like, opening every night and nobody came in, like it would be time to do one of two things, either make a radical change or shut the restaurant down. Right. That's right. Yeah. But that, but that within this analogy that because you've been able to do that, or I've been able to do that, that it isn't necessarily the only way to stay relevant, stay engaged in, you know, increase your impact isn't always by increasing your scale. And I think that that's perhaps like late capitalists, our brains are just, we're just there thinking that more is always more to the point that people feel totally worthless if they have something successful on a certain scale. And I guess that's just kind of what I've been trying to dig in on and, and not get swept up in that insecurity and chasing the, the data, chasing the numbers, because we're living in a time when everyone is looking at numbers under, you know, everything they do. Like, and I think about like, you know, using the word civilian kind of joking around, but like, you know, a civilian, that's like a teenage girl, like, you know, posting a picture and she's kind of dealing with the same sort of data points that she's got to interpret just casually, socially as part of her existence, as we do when it's part of our business model. And I, I really feel for people that that's, that all of life is now like a publicly tabulated running tally of your of your quote-unquote value it's like i do think it's worth having these conversations of recognizing the data is great but it's measuring certain things it's not we don't have data points for like soul you know like just it sounds obvious but let's just remind ourselves you know we're not there yet <laughs> i think there's a there's a piece of this that we're missing that i i think is interesting and, and it'll be interesting to see i don't know the answer to this but those of us who specifically lived through i would say the 90s you know probably decades prior are coming into this with this feeling that there there's value in not having mainstream recognition and right. that we do appreciate those things that that are just our thing and i and i honestly like i don't know is that something for for you know people who are coming up now is is there power in 
being underground? Well, that's, this is exactly um, what I think is tricky and why we're useful, hopefully, for the morale of younger people who are maybe feeling a bit daunted is that like, you know, we can explain that there was a time, there was a way where you would choose, right? As you're saying, like the idea of being underground, kind of like the term terminology of selling out or these concepts that seem to have just disappeared was like that you would, you were choosing, you were saying like, I'm making decisions because I'm trying to attract certain people and I'm trying to do a certain thing. It wasn't this idea that it was, it was a bit exclusive, right? Like, um, so like when I look at the choices that metric made and the kind of songs that we write, what we write about, the way we perform, the, everything we did was not us saying over here, everyone, like we're trying to get along with everybody, you know, that's never been the agenda. And instead it was like, we're going to craft something and hopefully we're going to find our people because they're going to connect with that. But I don't know how you do that now when everything is sort of in the same, it feels like it's in this like coliseum almost where you can see everyone. So you can see that someone's only got six people at their show. Whereas before it would just be something that would be allowed to happen where six people were at your show and you wouldn't have to feel this sort of humiliation of, of being feeling underappreciated in the grand scheme of the billions of people on earth. Like, and I, I think you're absolutely right that that is a generational thing. And like so many things from being, you know, being my age that I feel so lucky, like that we have kind of a shred of dignity, you know, from, from remembering that there was such a thing as people being like, no, I want to play these little clubs. I stand for something. There's a sense of the underground having meaning rebellion, having meaning um, as opposed to just being that you're everything you're doing is trying to attract more and more people. I mean, one thing that we've talked around, but didn't quite get to is, is, is the opening track on the record from the standpoint of you, you saying that, you, you know, you felt empowered to do that because of the decisions you made. But beyond that, what was the motivating factor to pick that as the opening track? Because it's like both in terms of length, the pace of the song and the subject matter, it's, it's heavy. Yeah. I mean, it, it seemed like it was either going to be last or it was going to be first. And um, it was a pretty passionate discussion. Um, if it was last, people would probably never hear it. You know what I mean? Like just, yeah, it's insecure. Yeah. But, but also people don't really, you know, they don't really, and they, I don't, I, they never really did, you know, like classically, like oftentimes will be this really long song at the end of an album, but most of the time you're listening through, you stop before you get there. Well, I guess it depends on the album, but, but yeah, in this but, you case, know, you know, like we've all, we've all been there, right. Where it's just yeah, like, Oh, for sure. And a lot of times, yeah. And if you place it, you know, especially since we've, I think people who listen to our music know we, sequence is a big thing for us with the albums. And um, if you place it there, I totally agree. Like it's, it's almost, it's saying something else. It's saying like, Hey, I'm going to leave you with this. Like, you know, it's a very different um, meaning, but I think one of the things that pushed it over the edge was like the sense that, we're going to have to continue being bold. That's going to be what works for us, not works against us. Um, and then also this kind of like side bit, which is the first line of every album has a lot of significance when we, when we look back. Um, and I just felt like coming out of what we've just been through and apparently are still in and going back in and whatever is happening with the pandemic, but you know, lining up all the numbers under the names is um, even without the pandemic, we can all pull to mind any number of horrific themes where we're lining up numbers under 
names. And um, so, and I also, I just felt like I felt confident that people who, you know, metric fans are cool and that they would be like, wow, this is really intense. And I'm, and I'm down for it. You know, we don't leave you hanging. I feel like you do get redemption at the end, but um, yeah, it's, it's weird too, because initially I felt like it was so dark and sometimes I'm scared about stuff. Like I've definitely written stuff where I'm like, this is too, this is not, this is not helpful for people. (laughs) This is like, um, and then I swear the world got darker to match the darkness of doom scroller. So that by the time it came out, it was like, it was like, yeah, lining up all the numbers under the names. Like that's what we've all been doing for two years. So all right, I just got really depressed. <laughs> oh, I'm still like coughing as I'm just getting over COVID. So I'm, you got it recently too. Yeah. I think the flip side of the conversation that we've been having for most of the interview, you know, this idea of saying relevant is when, when songs are tied to a specific theme and a specific moment in time, do you risk, do you risk it almost being too relevant of it not resonating? Like, you know, knock on wood, if we get out of this thing eventually in the same way that it does at the moment. Yeah. I know it's, um, I had that at the beginning of the, like, you know, in March, 2020, I just had a full meltdown with Jimmy where I was like, I can't write. Like I'm not writing a bunch of work about this like ridiculous, terrible situation. No one's going to want to think about this. We're all going to want to be on the other side of it. And he was like, you're going to write. And I was like, no, I'm not. And then he was, I totally wrote um, a lot. And then I had that same thing where I was like, this record can't be something that is looking back. It has to be, it's that the whole setting is us coming out, um, which is definitely what we uh, tried to do. And I hope that we, that we did, but in the end, you know, what swayed me about the topical nature of, of, you know, a lot of the lyrics, particularly Doom Scroller, like, is, as I said, unfortunately, that can be applied to a lot of um, other topics. But Jimmy said, you know, he's like, this has been a global phenomenon. And it's like, you know, you saying, I don't want to, I don't want to write about the pandemic because someone being like, I'm not, you know, writing about World War Two. It's like, you can't, there's a, at some point, the historic fact of the time that you're living in it like permeates everything. And I think what I was resisting similar kind of, I feel like you're bringing up is like the idea, like, come on, was it really that big a deal? Like, you know, maybe the music should supersede that or like, let's, we don't want it to be this blip that you, you know, but I feel like now, especially since I'm seeing that, I don't know, man, I don't, I don't see us ever being fully out of, I think we're permanently changed now that um, unfortunately, I think it's just, going to fit into the fabric of, of life as opposed to being like something that's too tied to the pandemic, but we'll see. Yeah. I'm going to say something really dark and just move on it from immediately, but I'm, I'm in New York, I'm in the States and you know, last year we've, we've had, we've had four or five shootings that like absolutely line up with that first line of that song. So I know it's, it's a lot to imbue in a specific album to say, this is the album that sets us up for the next two decades, right? That that's like a huge responsibility that you're putting on one record. But again, you know, m- maybe you're not like a master prognosticator, but kind of abstractly, what are those elements? What, you know, and, and how are you sort of able to define what going into the next two decades of metric looks like? Yeah. I mean, I think those elements are definitely the boldness, um, 
and really like expanding what rock is because poor rock is kind of like a, <laughs> yeah. a, uh, a long, an unloved genre currently, but that's cool. That's okay with me because things come in and out of favor. I don't really care. Yeah, and here we are again, you know, uh, with the undergrounds, but just where we, maybe where we want it to be. So I feel like that the, the boldness is going to continue to be key. And crucially, I think, as was the case on this record, is it's not about like taking the temperature of some sort of cultural climate and being like, aim for that, like steer your ship toward that, you know, landmark. It's opposite. It's internal pushing myself. I really can only speak for myself. And I know those three guys do the exact same thing, the guys in the band. So, but it's just pushing myself past my own discomfort, checking myself anytime it starts to get lazy um, and going toward more vulnerability, more openness and, um, and less clinging to nothing um, is going to be the, the recipe for us. And I think that if we, if we stay this with this attitude and Jimmy developing as through the 20 years I've worked with him of his production and love of just pure love of like modular synthesis and all these instruments constantly learning, constantly evolving. I feel like we're going to make some really cool sounds that correlate to an emotional place for people that's valuable and useful. And I have no idea what that will look like in terms of scale. I have no idea if it'll be a diminishing pool of people who are interested. And honestly, as long as we're okay, I don't even mind as long as I feel like the work is getting better. But for we have sort of defied a lot of rules over time and had more people come to us. So they'll know why they'll, why they're there. It probably won't because be because we have like a dipping sauce at Taco Bell. Here's to the next two decades. <laughs>